Jaxa Space and Astronautical Science Podcast. Welcome to the Jaxa Space and Astronautical Science Podcast. I'm your host Toshihisa Mikaido. This episode, we talk with Tomoko Lisa Kate Kitagawa, who generally goes by Kate. She is the newly appointed director of the Space Education Center at Jaxa. Kate has an extraordinarily diverse background with a multitude of amazing accomplishments. We get into various topics, many of which we do not regularly cover on this podcast, such as the methods and importance of education, living and learning in many different countries, the art of diplomacy, Japanese history, writing and public speaking, and so much more. Now, without further ado, let's get into the show. Our guest today from JAXA's Institute of Space and Astronautical Science, the director of the Space Education Center, Tomoko Lisa Kate Kitagawa. Kate, welcome to the show. And I understand that you just began your current position at JAXA this month, April 2022. So welcome to JAXA as well. Thank you. And thanks for having me today. So I usually start the episodes just by uh, having a guest describe what they do at JAXA, given you've only been here for less than two weeks now. I think it would be more appropriate for me to ask what you will be doing at JAXA, so your main focus, and what you personally hope to accomplish in your new position. Definitely. Thanks for asking. So currently, I'm learning many, many, many things about JAXA. Rockets, satellites, and planets, and moon. Many things are completely new to me. So I was interested in space science, but I never had to work with it. Um, I, I never had to study for it. So currently, I'm learning things from many people, like amazing people here at ISIS, and also a lot of people at JAXA. For space education program that I have many international programs that I like to install. So right now, uh, this is a stage that I'm talking to staff members of Space Education Center, and I really wanted to make a great formation for the future programs. So the Space Education Center provides many programs to the public. For example, we go to schools and talk to people like you know who are learning and also wanted to teach more about space sciences. We are working together with museum professionals so that uh, we could do exhibitions and also large-scale activities together. And uh, we have an online component of it. So we just decided to make a package for teachers to view so that they don't have to go anywhere to learn it, but they can learn things at home. So there are like a variety of things that we are covering right now. But uh, my real goal is to push that to the international level. So specifically for the schools that you mentioned, these are are schools in mostly Japan, I take it? That's correct. How specifically do you teach kids and and keep their interest in topics that I suppose are generally thought of as very difficult to understand and require a lot of focus to, to really get into? Right. So we try to make things fun to learn. So the first principle is to ignite their inner passion about learning so that we use things about space or the flights so that they will be dealing with things that they don't usually associate with, but you know, they can um, get to know about new things with curiosity and uh, with passion. So we we'll really like to be working together with kids in person. And obviously like, you know, nowadays it's 
a little bit hard to do that, um, you know, to, to have activities in person, but we really wanted to, even through internet, uh, to interact with kids directly. Is there an age range that you specifically work with in these schools? Are we talking elementary kids, high school kids, or, or both? So from preschool to oh, preschool. high school. Wow. So let's say that we had a, a kid in, in maybe grade two or so, so someone very young, mm -hmm. and uh, you wanted to introduce this child to space and, and astrophysics and a lot of the interesting things that uh, we do at JAXA. Could you give us an example of something that you might do to spark their interest? Sure. So we have a great program that we sent out seeds to International Space Center, and the seeds came back from it. And we're distributing those seeds to kids and they grow those uh, seeds at home. And um, we try to observe them together and try to teach them like what would be the difference between the seeds that went into the space and what would be the seeds that just stayed on earth. So there will be something that um, the elementary school kids can learn. You know, there will be something will be different. You know, if the seeds went to space or seeds stays on earth. So those are the things that we do, yeah. That's interesting. Is there a lot of seeds that you, you have that came back from uh, the International Space Station? Yes, indeed. So it's okay to, to be handing them out to everybody then? <laughs> Almost. So Almost. we are not in short yet. So the second batch should be distributed soon. Um, so um, we will be opening soon uh, for the applications. So the first round was very successful that many um, preschool to like, you know, early elementary school kids, um, they were really enjoying growing them together. And nowadays we are connected through Twitter and, you know, other SNS channels. So um, they're really happy to see how other people grew seeds. I guess they not only observe the differences themselves, but especially with the younger kids, they can interact with their parents and get that out into the world, which does sound like a, a very interesting process and in how you get them involved. Definitely. How would this look in the case of older students, let's say later years of high school, for example? So for high school students, um, we provide some programs that they could actually go abroad to participate in conferences. So for example, the big conferences like you know, IAC, and there will be some students going through our program and they will be presenting their own work. And also they will be interacting with the local students. So um, those are the great opportunities for high school. And also here, we provide some um, summer programs. So the ISIS graduate students are teaching the high school students about how to create missions. So those are the great things to participate and they could create their own sort of like, you know, missions with the actual specialists. So I think those are the really uh, interesting programs for high school students. Have any of those missions ever gone on to actually become real missions? Oh, we were still hoping so, but um, <laughs> not yet. It, it might happen. So it I guess if, if any high school students are listening and have the opportunity to actually go to the ISIS campus and check out one of these summer programs. You know, you and might we never know, they might become an astronaut, right? This is true. <laughs> <laughs> so you said that you do collaborations with museums and the like. Can you explain how those events work? Right. So the public events, we work with uh, many different places, including museums. 
So we're not really just uh, specifying the places to work with, but we are open to all organizations if they are interested in face education. So for museums, obviously, like you know, our next step is to open up again, like in-person seminars and also some exhibitions that specifically targeting school kids. So those are the things that we do with museums and museums come handy that it has the real objects so they could see and hopefully touch some of the, the objects. And those are the real opportunities for education. With the online uh, being able to learn at home, although you, you might not get access to being able to see or touch any physical items like you would at the museums or at the schools, but I suppose it's, it's a lot easier to get more information out to a lot of people at once. Can you give us any example of what an online course or package or, or any kind of education package that you put together would be like in the online sphere? So that's something that I'm really thinking hard about. So currently we have the packages for online learning for some specific grades at school, but we don't really have a complete set of things to offer. And that's the place that I like to help from this year, uh, starting from a short podcast, which will be just about one to two minutes. So they're explaining core ideas and some sort of like, you know, information, very basic ones, but to provide that in both uh, Japanese and English, for example. And those things can be very helpful for students. They could not go out of town, um, going to the actual museums. Uh, they, they could learn things from home. And will all of this be completely free of charge and easy to access? For now, yes. For now, okay. That's great. <laughs> uh, it's a lot to be excited about. And uh, once a lot of these new things are put together, we should, we should definitely make sure that we get the word out and everybody internationally Thank as you. well can have uh, access to these because it could be quite exciting getting people involved in a lot of these opportunities and I would like to do that together with um, other countries as well. So it's not just targeting the kids in Japan, mm -hmm. but I would like to be uh, pulling out the standard a little bit higher. And we like to be catching the audience from, you know, many other countries, including, you know, Southeast Asia, you know, those places that we are close to geographically, mm -hmm. but we have not been really interacting through education. So that's the goal that we like to be building. And um, many people know about, say, NASA or ESA, but for East Asian countries, uh, we need more close contacts and education can be something that can contribute a lot to. Definitely. Is there anything that you think specifically will come back to JAXA with this sort of international education? Or is it more of a, a noble contribution and, and that's the end of it? Well, I would like to be hoping um, in the future, if we run this program, that um, there will be a local basis that they will build in their own countries so that they can have their own you know, facility. They are ready to pursue their goals and they can collaborate with JAXA. So that would be the ideal situation that I'll be hoping for. There's a lot to hope for in the future and, and a lot of potential for being mutually beneficial for everybody. That's right. It's great. And of course, the contribution from JAXA to all these other countries as well That's in right. itself is, is definitely a great thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know you have a, a very diverse background and I, I personally am actually a fan of sort of developing various skills, learning interdisciplinary knowledge and figuring out how they connect. 
we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but I know you have a bachelor's degree in mathematics and life science and yes. uh, with a minor in political science, yes. a PhD in history, yes. I believe. I mean, you clearly have a, and that's not even getting into your uh, career history, which we'll definitely get into later, but you clearly <laughs> have a, blo- uh, a very broad range of knowledge and I think the ability to teach uh, in various settings as well. Thank you. So there's a few things that I do want to ask about having this this wide range of knowledge, but one of them is how these skills have helped you in your career so far, and if there's actually practical usage for having such different skill sets, such as, let's say, mathematics and history, which, although I'm sure there is definitely some crossover, they may not seem like complementary subjects to begin with. So whether or not these are actually very complementary and how they have actually served you so far. Thanks for asking this. So I studied mathematics and I quite liked it from my high school years. And at that time, I was just studying for exams, right? So there are tests. And uh, my goal was to solve those questions as quickly as possible and as accurately as possible. So that was my goal. But studying it further on, I I started to think that mathematics has no answers. So you started to know like, you know, what math was really in college. And then I started to learn like history, for example, like much later. And they are actually the same thing because there's just not visible immediately. And you really have to work hard to look for answers. And it could be just tentative answers, but um, that's something that both mathematicians and historians do. So I was amazed to find out that two seemingly not related subjects were actually related or doing the same thing. So for me, like, you know, it was a really a great discoveries that uh, learning really was a, you know, sort of the same process. And that can be applied to almost all subjects, especially like you know, when you are doing experiments, you know, this is the same thing that you, know, you don't see the results first and you just have to try out and don't give up, right? Until you find something. The same thing is true for math and history. So personally, I feel like you know, I just chose a different theme and from the different approach. But basically what I do is the same, just study and look for some sort of patterns and hopefully some truth, right? And so that's what I do. And the college education really helped me to do that. And I I was in Canada at that time. So math students could take other courses, not just electives, but as minors. And my case was that I combined life sciences as my double major and um, political science as minor. And they let us design and create our own degree. And that was something that I quite enjoyed. So I did not have to hesitate, you know, like I like both political science and mathematics and I could do that. And I think that flexibility really helped me to look for, you know, the things that I wanted to do in life. It's surprising, I I think, to hear that, you know, math and history can be seen as basically the same thing or have the same root, essentially. Would you say the same thing for the, let's say, life sciences and and political science as well? I think so. I think so. There are many similarities. So, for example, making the hypothesis, right? So for both uh, science and also politics, that they will have to have some sort of pathway to think 
about things. And then those things can be pretty similar. And so they deal with completely different subjects. You know, one side might be just, you know, about the anatomy of dogs. And the other side might be like, you know, politics, you know, what kind of things happening tomorrow in the UK. But, you know, we just have to use logic or, you know, the way to think through it. And that kind of patience and, you know, investigative, you know, spirit and both are the same. So I think, you know, that the target is different, but I still think that we need the same sort of attitude and also like, you know, the ways to find, you know, find out something new. So as an educator, have all of these skills been useful for you? Definitely, definitely. So I could think about uh, teaching things for 10, dif like 10 different ways, right? So <laughs> there will be some subject that I wanted to teach and it's not about a specific, specific, but you know, there are some ways to sort of like, you know, approach differently. So I could approach one theme, like, you know, about how to talk about the moon, you know, from like 10 different approaches. And that could come from life, life science side, or that could come from historical side, and that could come from mathematical side, right? So I think there are many approaches to take. As an educator, I think that was really helpful to have a various background, um, my own education. I, I might already know the answer to this, but I would like to know your opinion in uh, whether or not, let's say later in life, I think a lot of people tend to not really get focused on learning a lot of new things. But in your opinion, do you think it's still important for, let's say, somebody beyond the point when the, the brain is, is generally considered naturally plastic and capable of uh, <laughs> like a sponge? So people after let's say 30 and beyond, if they should definitely still... Everybody has to keep learning. Definitely, definitely. So my ambition is to build um, some program for adults and also seniors. So they are the people who are educating the next generations. So kids just don't come to school on their own. They mm -hmm. come with adults or, you know, grandpa, grandmas, right? Mm -hmm. So if they are not interested in space science or space education, that kids will not be even, you know, coming to our program. So I think, you know, the important part that we have not done yet is continuing education. So we just have to offer more for adults and uh, senior citizens here. So do you think that the adults and senior citizens should also focus on a, a really wide range of topics to learn about or should yes. they specifically study? One thing? So a, a lot of things is better for most people then. I think they know what they are looking for in a way, because, you know, sometimes the career path help mm -hmm. them to think, you know, in, a, in like, you know, really interesting way. So I think we could probably offer like, you know, various things to adults and they could choose what they really want to know about. So that could be like, you know, say, you know, the gardening and rocks, you know, that's something that they like to do. And that mm -hmm. could be about asteroid, right? And, you know, some other time like if they really wanted to learn more about music you know they play the guitars or like they play the piano then you know we could offer some programs that you know they could sing along with their grandchildren or you know school kids in the in the area so I think you know there are many creative ways to be involved and my point really is that the learning should continue and they will really have to just be active so that you know they can teach to the next generations. We'll really try. I personally like to try to focus more on the continuing education.
Great answer. And as you mentioned, with your own education so far, definitely a lot of similarities or points of reference that you can take from learning completely different things. So, you know, even for the people who might not be interested at all in space, but for some reason are listening to this podcast, <laughs> are, can definitely get something right. out of that. Well, that many people use. know me as a historian, so that could happen, right? So that might be a crossover that's very unexpected, but still that can happen. And that's what for I'm sure, hoping yeah. for. And you're right. So we sort of brought it up a couple times here uh, regarding your career history, but yes. I, would, I would really like to divulge into that uh, a lot more. I did read your, uh, your public biography before <laughs> doing this episode. And, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of things there about you being featured in uh, documentaries or giving lectures at prominent universities and events and the writing you've done, the impressive accolades you've received. You. So a lot of things I'd like to get into. But first, if you could just please sort of go over your life and career history so far, it would really give us a, a great point to start. Anything that you feel comfortable talking about from, you know, as far back as to where you were born to where you <laughs> went to school and worked and every, pretty much everything leading up to coming to JAXA. You sure. Um, I think you. the main point um, or say starting point that I like to mention is the time I left Japan. So at that time, I spoke no words of English, and I did not even know um, how to get from point A to point B so that my host family should give me the card, you know, the little one, little cards to, to really show to people. So I was at that level that I was not communicating at all with um, native speakers. The and little, little card was, had a message on it that said, had a message on it. It's like you know, tagging your dog, you know, they're like saying, like, you know, this is an address, <laughs> right? So, like, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, if you find this dog, you know, return it to this address. <laughs> so that kind of idea. So it had an address on. So my host mother um wrote uh, her name, uh, phone number, and address, and on the back side of it, um, she wrote, you know, sort of direction to the bus driver. So, you know, this girl is going to Lonsdale Key. So please, you know, have her, you know, just please watch, you know, her and, you know, she has to get it off there. So that kind of, you know, thing. So I had like maybe four or five of them from my house to my English school. So that was the start of my life. And really, and, you know, I grew up in Japan, but before moving to Japan was more like a, just growing up. And like, you know, now like it's an actual life started from that point that I, I learned language and also like I find really many things that I wanted to do. So the starting point was really, you know, leaving Japan and started to learn a new language. Was this in university? That was after high school. After so, high school, okay. Mm -hmm. So sort of uh, between university and high school? Yes, quite amazing that you decided to go to a different country where you you didn't know the language and, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there was a lot of difficulties I'm sure that you had to overcome while continuing with your history mm -hmm. your educational history and your career history here I would also be interested if you would speak on to how you ended up overcoming such mm -hmm. difficulties and, and like you mentioned the, the any people who actually helped you and, and yes. how you got through that thanks first thing I did was to give up everything. So I totally gave up studying English. <laughs> How could I do that, right? So I was in Vancouver and I was living with my host family. 
And at that time, as I said, like I had no words of English coming out from my mouth so that they were just like basically feeding me. And um, there was a kid growing up and um, it was only like a year old when I was there and he was growing up and then I started to learn language sort of like um, with him. So I watched cartoons and usually like, you know, the high school students who were already there in North America would not be watching this cartoon, but I did that. And uh, I forgotten about like, you know, everything that I had to do for college preparation. So I gave up, but I think that really worked out so that I was focusing on the basics and, you know, basics of, you know, watching TV and also like you know, eating together with family, just, you know, sort of things that usually people do. And that really helped me to sort of calm myself down and then got ready to speak, speak languages. So, yeah, and of course, Canada. So like, you know, we, we learn like, you know, French um, along the side and that schools really teach both languages. So that was really interesting things to really, you know, experience there. Like, you know, Japan is like, you know, Japanese and, uh, you know, that's pretty much everything that we need to know. But, you know, they're like, you know, bilingual society where you see the signs in two languages and that really opened my eyes. You know, they're like not just English there, but there's French and there is German and, you know, there is more. So I think that was like an opening a lot of doors to me later. The thing that I really wanted to do was like, you know, far beyond what I imagined. So, you know, there's a North America and there will be Europe and there will be Africa and so on. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, there are like really many things uh, happening afterwards. But from the beginning, I did not expect anything, anything even successful and uh, or anything, you know, anything to do with um, what I do now. So, yeah, it was like a, just a starting point. Yeah. Even though you, you weren't preparing for it, you ended up going to university while you were in Canada? Right. So I still like to learn more about mathematics. So at that time, I spoke just a bit of English, but like not much. So I could not do like, say, you know, English literature. Of course not. Right. Yeah. So I studied science and um, life sciences and also mathematics. So my desire to do a little bit more about math let me enter school. And as you know, in Canada, entering it is not that hard but you have to study to graduate, right? So at that time, I was able to enter schools, but I wasn't, you know, really guaranteed to have a degree. So I had to take classes and I had to study hard. And that process gave me really an idea of what it means to learn a subject like mathematics and, you know, learn different subjects, you know, like uh, political science and stuff. So, yeah, that was really an interesting progression of interest. And this was four years? Uh, right. So four years program and I graduated in three. Oh, graduated in three. So you, uh, <laughs> even without knowing English, you were without knowing English, right? get ahead of everybody. How, how was... <laughs> How was your English when you uh, when you actually graduated? Had it so uh, not good, no. not good enough to do a presentation. So I remember one time that I was in the pub. You know, we all go to pub. You know, when we are in college, and um, drinking, and then some. You know, my friends told me that I had to be more confident so that I could speak up in class. So I was at that level before graduating. So I vaguely remember that time that my friends really pushed my back. And saying that I just have to do the presentation and, you know, just 
don't run away from it. So at that time, before graduating, there were some classes that we took together, and um, I decided to give a presentation without reading a paper. So I just like threw this paper like you know away and tried to do a full presentation with my hands like talking like professionals, right? So <laughs> and that was really a uh, great experience. That later on I started to love public speaking, and um, that was the start and I really appreciate like you know my friends telling me that I should just go on this challenge and give up of like you know being shy you know being just quiet and so on so I really do remember that moment that my friends supported me through all the way. Public speaking is, is definitely a skill I think a lot of people would like to get better at uh, myself included. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Good. <laughs> Would you say that it is, do you think that public speaking is an important skill for pretty much everybody to have and that everybody should force themselves into these sorts of situations? Right. Well, I understand that some people prefer like writing, for example, so mm-hmm. that, you know, it's not the only way to communicate with people. But I think there are some people who did not experience the moment like I did. So, you know, maybe some potentials there. And they're just not knowing, you know, like they're good at it. Mm -hmm. So I would say that, you know, it's worth trying, you know, just don't be shy and try to do one or two public speeches. And then we'll just see like, you know, how you feel about it. And some people, you know, might feel great about it and then continue. And the other people might really find that writing or like, you know, typing, um, those kind of things will be their method to communicate. So it doesn't fit all. But I recommend, you know, to just push a couple times and try out and see if that works. What did you end up doing after you graduated university in uh, Canada? So I went to a summer school at Harvard. And that was a great challenge for me because I lived with my um, family, uh, host family. And um, I was quite happy with all my friends in Vancouver. So I really did not want to leave that town. But, you know, Vancouver is on West Coast. So I wanted to go and see the East Coast. So that was like in a summer adventure for me. So I did um, two, three weeks um, of uh, initial exploration of like, you know, the Boston area. You know, Boston is Boston. You know, like you're there. It's exciting, right? And when you know about Boston, you have to go to New York, right? So those kind of exploration I'm talking about. And um, I was quite amazed to see the differences between the West Coast and East Coast. And um, the mentality is different. You know, people's um, way of organizing events are different. And of course, you know, not like Canada, the U.S. is English only. So that was quite different from like, you know, being in bilingual situation to English only speaking country. So I think that was really, um, you know, interesting in many ways. And um, it was different sort of like, you know, scenery as well, because Vancouver is like green, like, you know, it's parks everywhere and, uh, you know, by the sea. And um, yeah, like not too many buildings at that time, but, you know, New York is a big apple, right? So I think those kind of differences that, you know, made me feel like, you know, the world is big, you know, just don't stay at one place. (laughs) 
after your time at the uh, summer school of Harvard, what did you end up doing next? And did you end up studying, what was it more math and life science at Harvard that you studied? Right. So thanks for asking this. So that was a point where I thought about learning more about Japanese history. So Canada is made up of immigrants. So it's like multiculturalism is the, the only policy that, you know, people will share in the area. So like they will not be excluding, you know, immigrants from a particular countries, but we really have to live together. So um, this like big principle was there in Canada, but in the U.S., that's more like, you know, independent racial groups sort of coexist you know it's called like you know salad bowl or something you know it's just like a different metaphor so the culture was quite different from being in Canada and being in the U.S. so when I went to Boston they looked at me as a Japanese woman and in Canada I never been asked like my background because everybody was immigrant right so there was like quite a different sort of you know cultural interest to, to myself then I realized like, okay, now I have to explain about Japan and what I have to explain about being a Japanese woman. So that was like, you know, the point where I never thought of such questions and I had to give sort of like, you know, clever answers to it. So that, that's the point where I started to think about uh, learning Japanese culture and history. And so at Harvard, I studied uh, Japanese history and um, I realized that the history was all about samurai so it's like you know male leaders like you know they do like fierce fighting and they will be okay with killing people and I just did not agree to it you know there will be more to history and peacemaking so that I thought about like you know talking something from a different angle which is like woman's standpoint and try to have an idea of Japanese history moving from samurai like male oriented to like more gender neutral and like more balanced, you know, um, history. So that was the point where I started to really learn about history and wanted to write more about history, um, especially about Japanese women. Any specific reason that you ended up studying Japanese history at Harvard as opposed to a university in Japan? Right. Yeah, I never thought of doing that until I was a graduate student at Princeton. But uh, Harvard, I wanted to have a good score, of course, right? So I thought Japanese history would give me an easy A. <laughs> so <laughs> to be completely honest, I thought I knew all of it. And I did not. <laughs> I guess growing up, you learn a lot in school in Japan already. So you would expect to <laughs> maybe get a, a pretty good right. grade. Yeah. I, I assume so. And uh, again, like, you know, the result was opposite. Like, I did not know <laughs> anything about it. <laughs> After your, your time at Harvard, you, you said you went to Princeton and it was, right. and, and you continued to study Japanese history there? At that time, I studied Japanese history and also I wanted to continue mathematics. So I did a, a field. So like there are three fields that I had to study. So one field in a history of mathematics, especially in East Asia. So um, Princeton is famous for um, having strong math department. And at that time, I didn't know even like there is a such thing called history of mathematics. And, you know, that was the first time I heard about it. And I was like, definitely, that's a subject for me. <laughs> so I was continuing to learn more about, you know, history. And at the same time, I continued mathematics. And then later on, I put them together and um, 
uh, we'll get to there, but I was specializing in the history of mathematics in the recent years. You ended up getting your PhD from Princeton and was, was that yes. in, that was in history? That was in history. Mm -hmm. I see. And right. where did you go after that? Did you start working in either America or Canada or did you come back to Japan? So I came back to Japan and worked at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for a while. And that, that, at that time, I was still a graduate student and I wanted to do research in Japan and I needed some sort of job to earn some, not like earning money, but it's more about, yeah, learning about Japan and also like, you know, um, getting, you know, more life experiences. So that was a great choice that, yeah, I opened up, not just like, you know, going to the university, but, you know, get a work experience. So it was a fantastic time to be at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. How long were you there? That was short. It was uh, eight months. Eight months. Yeah. And then from that point onward, I went back to New York. So Princeton is pretty close to New York, only like, you know, an hour away. So I lived in New York. I was also working at the permanent mission of Japan to the United Nations. At the time, I was also a student, you know, on a student visa. So I was interning there at the United Nations. And then I was finishing up my PhD in Princeton. So this is all before you actually uh, officially graduated Princeton. Then. That's right. Right. Oh, wow. So you'd already worked at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and for United Nations, uh, the United Nations before even graduating. This is some pretty big uh, organizations. So. Yes, it was like a quite um, an experience. You know, I still remember vividly about being in the diplomats lounge. So it was more like, you know, a place where I didn't even dream of being there. But it was a great culture of, you know, interactions of diplomats. Their language is great. Their attitude is great. And I was really into, you know, the world of diplomacy and learned so much to the point that I just really remember every single day of living in New York. Is the diplomats lounge the area where the people of the UN yes. get together? Right. So that, that's probably a general assembly that you're talking about. So like, you know, diplomats sitting, you know, at their country's booth. Mm -hmm. But the lounge is more like a social space between the sessions that diplomats just go and, you know, just, just to have a chat with other diplomats and so on. So that was a really, um, yeah, great place to mingle with people and um, have a quite a casual chat and uh, get to know people. And, you know, often that we decide to go for lunch later or something so that, you know, it was a great meeting place for people. Mm. What kind of conversations did the, the diplomats have in the lounge? You don't have to right. mention who said what, of, of course, but do, right. do representatives of, of the countries get together and say, oh, did you see this new movie? Or, or is it, uh, is right. it a, also, what kind of conversation? Right, right. Interesting thing is that they talk about history. Oh, yeah. Yes. So that's a great thing that I was, you know, becoming a historian and I could provide some interesting, you know, um, stories from world history or Japanese history. And that's the part I thought history has an application 
you know, it's not just to be learning at school, you know, people mm. will be really taking, you know, the other side of view seriously through history. And that's something that I learned in the lounge. And yes, so that's why, you know, history to me became really important. <laughs> you have any examples that you're able to share of let's say an actual conversation that took place well if you can that... remember anything <laughs> oh right i wish but i remember that uh, people were asking about kimono for example mm -hmm. and like what's the function of it because they don't even know how to wear it right <laughs> so that was like an interesting sort of idea that when they see a japanese woman they would assume that we know how to wear it and uh, you know many japanese people would know that it's not easy you know to wear kimono right like there are pieces that you have to do it properly and you have to adjust things right and you have to look right so i think those kind of conversations surprise them because they would take it for granted that everybody would be able to wear it so that kind of thing and you know when do we change from that kind of style to, you know, Western style clothing and so on. So that would be like, you know, just like a, on the surface, it's like a simple chat, but it has like a you know, deep rooted, you know, history behind it. So I think, you know, pulling out those kind of, you know, nice topics um, through chat, I think that was really uh, interesting and also, you know, eye-opening like every day. And yeah, I discovered something about Japan. Mm -hmm. And how long was your internship at the UN? So that was probably about three more months. And right. And at that time, I was also um, going to see some events at the World Bank. Um, so in Washington, D.C. So that was another uh, sort of like big impact, um, you know, for me to be going into uh, capital of the U.S. And, um, you know, even though the time was short that I could see both cultures in you know, New York and Washington, D.C. So um, it's really memorable to me. You know, it, it, it was more like a three years worth of uh, experience than being there for three months. So I was very fortunate to be given this uh, chance to go and see um, World Bank and, uh, you know, the annual meetings and so on. So I'd like to ask about the topic of diplomacy here. But yes. uh, first, I'd like to continue with your career history and then we'll we'll come back to this uh, sure. later sure. so you graduated from Princeton shortly after this internship ended that's right and what did you do after that so I started to teach at Harvard so as I said I took a summer course uh, in uh, Japanese history back then uh, when I was still a um, graduate student living mm -hmm. in Canada and went to Harvard just for a short period of time. And at the time, the title of the Japanese history class was the samurai. And now that I was going to be teaching Japanese history at Harvard, I decided to name or rename the class the lady samurai. <laughs> I think we definitely need to pause and talk about the lady samurai. Sure. <laughs> I, uh, I've seen that you've uh, both written and spoken about the Lady Samurai on many occasions, I think. And I don't 
think that this is necessarily what people may uh, first imagine when they hear Lady Samurai. They they might be thinking of Onabugeisha or uh, <laughs> like Tomoe uh, Gozen uh, or whoever right. in history, or maybe Kunoichi, the female ninjas. But uh, right, right, this is right. I don't think this is the the case <laughs> uh, that you're right. talking about. So Good could you point, please describe, right? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess, what right. the Lady Samurai is with some examples and why this is important and and maybe even why you decided to focus on whatever examples you give as opposed to more physically combatant uh, women in history. Thank you. Thanks for asking me about this. So as you said, that maybe samurai could be someone who would be able to do a great, you know, sword fight. You know, they could be in a battle and they could be like, you know, really uh, having a great skill in combat. But I did not pick such example as a lady samurai because I did not really like the idea to make peace from, you know, through violent processes. And I was looking for an example of having a peaceful negotiations. Maybe that came from my experience of being a diplomat, but I was looking for women who contributed to build peace, um, not relying on physical strength nor weapons. And through my search, there was a great example, the unifier's wife, her name is Nene. And she's usually the behind the scene figure. So, you know, there's like, oh, wow, like, you know, the great guy who's, who had a wise wife, you know, like she was always behind him and then give, gave him like great advice. So that kind of idea that, you know, we, we had for Nene, but she did a lot more than that. So she was like a negotiator and she was a mother, not like a biological mother, but, you know, raising children uh, from different households. And, you know, I started to realize that her quality is actually really worth telling people about. So it's not about her skill in like combat, but she could do a lot of, like you know, peaceful negotiations and also, you know, trying to build the society where uh, people would not be relying on a physical force. So those, you know, examples that I started to collect, and they are not only Nene, but there are many examples like that. And I started to feel more proud about this historical research. And like, you know, Diplomats Lounge, if I were ever to be back, I'll be talking about the Lady Samurai, right? So that's why I started to write about the collection of stories, and especially I wanted to tell both um, Japanese audience and also, um, you know, English audience or like you know, people who reason and write in English. So um, I wanted to do bilingual in this story. So, yes, the so Lady Samurai is not a woman who fight, but, you know, those women who love peace and, you know, who will not be fighting with uh, weapons. I do have to admit that I, I think Lady Nene was the, the wife of Toyotomi Hideyoshi. That's right. Um, and Hideyoshi is probably one of my favorite historical figures really? from uh, Japan because uh, his, uh, I, I don't know, to me, his story seems like, you know, he started out as a lowly farmer and rose to be the most powerful man in history. Seems like mm-hmm. the, or, or at, at that point anyway, seems like the template for a, a Hollywood <laughs> movie here. Mm-hmm. And even though I, I do know, uh, I wouldn't say a lot, but uh, some about Hideyoshi and some other samurai, I'm not overly familiar with with what Nene actually did or what right. she accomplished. Of course, I know of her, but I right. would be 
interested if you would actually share some of the things that that she did, how she contributed to the unification of Japan, if she did, right. and, and how mm-hmm. she would negotiate or her diplomatic tactics for for mm-hmm. peace. Anything that you could mention on that would be sure. Uh, great one, <laughs> definitely, I'll be happy to provide one example. The greatest thing that Nene did was a communication via letters. So she was a letter writer. Like she, she, she was able to write letters and send them out. And usually that sounds like, you know, really, um, you know, it's not a skill that stands out, you know, like for us, like writing, it's normal part of our, you know, communication. But back then, not too many people um, had that skill. So she was uh, able to write and communicate through letters. And that made a great change, just made the whole situation uh, different. So it used to be just like, you know, talking person to person and everything like, you know, promised uh, by words just disappeared, you know, evaporated, right? But um, writing on the paper that testified the determinations or some conditions, you know, for truth, like many things that can be, you know, sort of verified by writing. So Nene contributed a lot for making some sort of documents and documentary evidence so that people would know, you know, in what step they are into a unification. So that's like a great difference that she made through writing. And also because her husband had been away for a long time, so she needed to know and gather information and to, you know, have rumors, you know, like maybe like husband's been killed and that will, you know, be a real tragic condition in the castle that she's been waiting, you know, for her husband coming back. So um, she needed to have an accurate set of information. And for that, you know, letter sort of communication network really helped to verify what kind of things happening away from their castle and so on. So she really was a clever woman who used the skill in writing and reading very well. And uh, she did that throughout her, her life. So until like her death is near, she never stopped writing. And that's something that's very impressive, you know, to me that, you know, she continued and, you know, she's just been like, you know, never giving up, getting like people's trust and so on. In your research, were you able to read her original letters or did you just sort of read the modern translated versions of these? Right. <laughs> So that's the most difficult part of being a Japanese historian. Um, so they wrote in cursive form, right? So it's, it's not very, like, you know, Yeah, very hard to like, read for, to read. I, I think, almost all Japanese people, even for anybody listening. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's like near impossible task. Mm-hmm. So um, I had to learn a cursive form and also classical Japanese so that I would be able to decode some to some extent. And of course, like even the specialists would not know what they're talking about. So, you know, two or three advisors, you know, they will have to verify my reading and writing of it. And surprisingly, when I collected Nene's letters or like letters related to Nene, there are about 90 in total. So, you know, when it comes to like reading classical Japanese in cursive form, or 90 times <laughs> that took a <laughs> lot of effort <laughs> right I, but in the end probably that's... like <laughs> yes yeah, probably like uh, deciphering hieroglyphs or <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> almost yeah. <laughs> right 
but that's worth it because that's actually you know her voice right so mm-hmm. nothing remains otherwise but you know what she thought about at that point what she wanted to do what she wanted to achieve everything was on her letters so yes i greatly enjoyed it is 90 letters remaining or, or at least letters that are, are known about is that a lot for any anyone to write in this era um Hideyoshi and other male leaders, they wrote a lot. So they're like numbers of remaining letters would be something like, you know, a few thousand. So compared to that, 90 is a small number. But the thing that I could see from the existent, the surviving letters is that Nene wrote far more than 90s. So, you know, from other people's replies or like, you know, the replies that she, she, she's gotten, I could see like, you know, she was writing like maybe as many letters as Hideyoshi, for example. So, yeah. Did you notice sort of a difference in the subject of, of the letter between, let's say somebody like Hideyoshi would write and uh, what Lady Nene would write? Would it be very clearly different in, in how messages are conveyed or great what's point, trying great to be accomplished? Point. Right. So you would assume that male and female talk differently, right? Yeah. But because they are husband and wife, just two, you know, communicating together so that their languages are somewhat mixed up together. So, you know, Hideyoshi will sometimes write completely in a male tone, which could be done in the Chinese characters. But for Nene, he mixes that with like, you know, um, a little bit more with kana, for example, and, you know, more, um, you know, female words in it. So, you know, it was more into like, you know, sort of gender neutral area, the platform that has not been existing before, but because of this particular, you know, sort of communication that they sort of got rid of gender barriers. So that's a really interesting points of research where like, you know, the female and male languages sort of merge together on the paper. So it's really an interesting example. And do you think this is because they already had a, a very close relationship or just, are there other examples with, of this? To begin with, yes. So when they were young, mm-hmm. <laughs> they were very close. And then it was uh, quite close uh, confident for Hideyoshi. But later on, things changed. So that's the place where Nene had to sort of like, for herself like you know on her own just to live with her own resources for example so she was clever enough to secure annual income which was like no one else did at that time and you know sort of like you know she knew that um, if the worst happens that means like you know husband's gone or husband's choosing a different woman that she still has a mean to live so I think that was a real independence that she was preparing. She was prepared for everything. And that kind of courage and also like, you know, preparedness um, surprised me a lot. That's interesting to hear. And a really good point about how, how the communication works there and how the written word really lasts as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, sort of a, a spoken promises or, mm-hmm. or anything mm-hmm. like that. Uh, that's definitely something that uh, remains in most cultures today, I would say, uh, mm-hmm. you know, business contracts, uh, right. emails, even uh, <laughs> social media posts. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Maybe too yeah. much sometimes, but yeah. <laughs> um, right. So for the, sorry, for uh, Lady Nene's writing, would she actually be present for or 
help produce any actual letters of of diplomacy in the more traditional senses, like a, a, a peace treaty or anything like that? Or or was that not even really something that uh, occurred at the time? Well, the closest example would be uh, flesh letters. So the paper, um, promises on papers, right? So uh, what Nene did was asking her uh, female attendants to write promises on paper and make a formal pledge. So that's something that I've never seen before. You know, like maybe like, you know, male vassals just showing their loyalty to their masters. And, you know, those kind of, you know, pledge letters exist. And what they had to do was to cut the tip of fingers and put a little bit of blood. And um, you have to press that blood onto the paper just to show your seriousness. Women would never expect to do that with like, you know, such things. And Nene's attendants did it. So it's like a great example of putting the promise on paper. And like, it's like a contract. And it's something that, you know, um, holds onto, I don't know, like for a longer time than like, you know, just uh, keeping promises by words. What kind of promises would be written in, in this case? So the letters promised something about how they will keep financial records, and also very valuable things that they are in charge of looking after. So um, those are like, you know, not something like, you know, very small, like, you know, they, they promise to do like, you know, um, cleaning every day, you know, it's not like that, you know, it involves in uh, valuables and also like, you know, financial matters. So um, the attendants have to be uh, accurate and also loyal so that, you know, the nene will be able to trust and also you know, in return, she, she's giving like, you know, certain amount of uh, financial support to them. So those kind of, you know, pledge, uh, pledge letters, I think those are the things that's really rare, but Nene was able to, you know, create such format like, you know, other people did. And, uh, and not like other women, but, you know, for the first time, the women started to practice that alongside with like, you know, other things that they never done before. So unification was not just like, you know, male fighting, you know, against each other, but female, like, you know, trying to support and make, um, you know, proper system working for themselves. So then, you know, the unification went smoothly and uh, the next generation started to practice the same way, you know, when the important promise has to be made, then they will not just be saying, you know, in person, but they were making that on paper. So, so writing had a power to increase the power of promises, I think. Well, we're on the subject of writing. I believe that you've actually written some books yourself. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> could you could you tell us about those, about sure. some of your writings? And after that, if you could also explain your, your writing process as well. I think there's probably a lot of people out there, a lot of listeners maybe who do writing in, in one form or another, whether it's mm-hmm. uh, they're trying to write a book or maybe just an email. Right. Um, and and even I like to uh, uh, sort of get into fiction writing here and there. So I'm always interested wow. to hear about people's wow. writing experiences and processes. So right. And and feel wow. free to promote any of your your books here as well. We can <laughs> put you. links in the show notes later if you want. <laughs> so regrettably that I don't write fictions. So <laughs> that's my next challenge. You know, you do that, Toshi. That's great. <laughs> But um, yeah, so I like to learn from you. Um, so my writing, the first book was about um, my time at Harvard. So why I started to teach, uh, study and teach the lady samurai class. 
and also about Kyoto and what kind of you know teaching philosophies behind it and so on. So I wrote that book, the very first draft, um, in about ten days, wow. and then not knowing that it will be um, published or like you know becoming a national bestseller. So at that time, my first sort of trial writing became like you know a big deal for me. But um, at that time, I just did not even know that I'll be publishing that. So why I wrote this was that I was really, really uh, appreciating the responses that I've gotten from my Harvard students. And they learned something from the class you know, of Lady Samurai or Kyoto. So having their feedback on the, on the desk, I decided that I have to tell this story to a Japanese audience. So at that time, I decided to write that. And um, you know, having a form of book, you know, it it it, it was rough, right? Like because you know, you write something in ten days and it's just not well edited. But you know, structure-wise, it was there, and I I could show the actual draft to someone, and that was a huge step. So without knowing that I had this draft showable to a publisher, a really interesting thing happened to me, which was that、um, my Friend, who I got to know through my experience of being at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Tokyo,、um, he was a, me- a media-related pers- person, and、um, I think he was a writer, even like a newspaper editor. So he knew someone、um, in the publishing industry, and、um, he read my draft, and he decided to recommend that for a publication. So that's how、um, you know that. You know, rough draft ended up, you know, landing on the publisher's hand. So、um, that was really amazing. So if I were not being、uh, in the field of diplomacy, this、uh, book was never、uh, come to light. <laughs> and, and this book, it was it written in English or Japanese?、Um, so Japanese. Yeah, Japanese. that was in Japanese、uh, to the Japanese audience. So I had to、mm-hmm. write that in Japanese, right? Is there?、Uh, um, we can、uh, definitely link to the Japanese version as well. But is there an English version of this, or is it Japanese only right now? It, anyway, this is a Japanese only version. And the story of the Lady Samurai, I started to write a short version of it、um, in both English and Japanese. So that's been、um, uh, available through a different magazine later on. But the first thing was about、um, Harvard and like how Harvard students reacted to my history classes. So, yeah,、um, that really was for the Japanese audience to learn about their own cultures. So pretty much the same way when I was in the diplomacy lounge, learning about my own country and culture, and then, you know I was telling myself, you know,、um, young selves. About you know how much that I learned、um, through my PhD and also teaching experience at Harvard. You said that you you wrote the first draft in about ten days. That's right. How long is this book, roughly? How many? Um, hundred eighty pages, I think. Hundred eighty pages.、Right. Oh, that's that's still quite a few, in especially for ten days. <laughs> well,、um, you know, Boston. Boston had snowstorms, right?、Uh-huh. So when you hit、uh, the those days, then you can't do much outside. So you know, just sit and write. <laughs> that's what、uh-huh. happened to me. <laughs> Roughly, how long did you spend each each day on so, average? So surprisingly, that was like some morning hours that I worked quite hard, and in the afternoon I did not do anything, but I was just playing the piano and think, you know, through things for the for the next day. And so, you know, it was a rough draft, but I think you know it was nice to have the whole book、uh, completed in one sort of like you know one go. Wow! So 
so mostly just writing in the mornings for right. less yes. than two weeks and you you got the first draft of a, a book that became a bestseller later <laughs> became the bestseller in japan so that was very fortunate yeah it's pretty amazing but isn't uh, it something like that though like when you're very excited about the thing that you mm-hmm. won't be waiting for a few days to tell people right <laughs> so you just pick up your phone and talk for two hours and that's about it isn't that right <laughs> yeah yeah for sure i mean if you're if you're excited about something and you you want to get it out you want to tell people right that was the spirit so it wasn't probably my ability but my excitement you know that came through (laughs) had you done a lot of writing up to this point whether you know professional or otherwise right so I wrote a few more books later and um, currently I'm working on um, the history of mathematics book actually a global history of mathematics with a co-author who is an editor of New Scientist, Tim Revel. Um, so we started off um, this project a few years ago, and um, we are writing our last chapter. Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, it will be due um, next March, so 2023, uh, we will have our book out. And for that, I did a lot of research uh, for a few years in England. And um, that's where I started off, you know, proposing this book um, to the publisher and uh, Tim joined and we're quite happy with how things are going at the moment. We've collected so many great stories, especially not about, you know, genius mathematicians, but more like hidden figures. Um, so of mathematics and like, you know, different backgrounds. So that starting from like, you know, being a woman that was not treated well uh, in the field of history of mathematics we don't know like you know female mathematician from ancient times do we right so well i started off like looking at archives and not only in europe but in asia as well so our examples could be like female mathematicians in europe and also in china and other places where uh, we dealt with you know islamic or say Arabic um, mathematicians who were really influential in the age where like, you know, before Kopelnik's, you know, came up with, you know, the grand thesis in a way, you know, there are some um, people who already sort of like, you know, set up the ground for it. And we don't know much about such, you know, history, you know, uh, behind Kopelnik's, but there are some like hidden figures. They're great, you know, like we just have to know about them. So the global history project is going quite well with like, you know, lots of diversity and also like, you know, gender wise is well balanced. You know, they're like, you know, we tell story both about women and men and also like, you know, many people who are classified as like a minority back then. Will this book be easy to understand and interesting for people who don't know a lot about math or or don't feel like they have a a big connection to mathematics? Right. So part of Tim being um, an editor of a popular magazine, um, science magazine, New Scientist, he is good at telling stories to a general public. So uh, my part is about math and also like, you know, history. And so like I provide the raw materials um, and then we just talk together and uh, we write, like I write the first version and then Tim um, and then 
I go again and Tim goes again and so on. But the point is to make things like real, you know, for the historians and the mathematicians, they would understand what, you know, this is about, but also, you know, accessible from like uh, people from a different uh, background. So we just try to have a good balance of like, you know, like some sort of like, you know, mass elements in it and history, historical elements in it and still like, you know, it's readable. So that's what uh, we are aiming at completing. Can't wait to- March, uh, 2023. March, yes. As Next long as month. that last chapter comes together, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't jinx. <laughs> and you are writing, uh, the, the parts that you write, you're writing these in English originally? Yes, all in English. Uh, but for now, uh, we know that at least five languages translation will come out soon after the publication, uh, including the Japanese version of it as well. Wow. So what is it like for you personally to write books in multiple languages? Because you've written in, in Japanese, right. 80 pages, and maybe some other books. And then this book sounds like it might be a long one that you've written in, in English as well. Is is your thought process different when you're writing in a different language? I think or? it used to be. You're right that I had a different mentality before because the first book was written in Japanese, which was my native, native language and also for the Japanese audience. So it was more like a particular group of people I was targeting. But for this English book, um, I can't pick the target audience. You know, it can't it can be picked up from anyone in the world. So, you know, the writing wise, you know, it was a quite a jump from like, you know, picking up the particular group of people to a wider audience. A, a little bit of a different experience, but it's not a, maybe not too huge of a hurdle for you. Perhaps? Right. I think it was a slow transition in a way that learning slowly about the writing and like, you know, being a professional writer that was mm -hmm. like, you know, yeah, interesting process every time. So every book is different. I recently read about my second book. Yeah, like after some years. And uh, I did not even remember how I, you know, came up with the specific parts. But now like, and you know, I come to sort of analyze things better, you know, from taking the time and looking it back. I think it was, uh, yeah, like certain things that I would have done differently now. So I think there is a certain level of growth, uh, I would hope. <laughs> that yeah. I did. Yeah. yeah, I think, and this probably isn't just for writing, but with a lot of things, if you do work a certain way and then you look back at it uh, years later, right? usually you'll find places where, oh, if I were to do that now, now, I probably right. would have done something a little bit different. That's right. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and I assume that fiction writers will do, you know, more editing than uh, nonfiction writers. Maybe. I, I mean, I assume as, as long as the information is accurate when you're writing nonfiction, uh, you don't really have to go back and say, oh, this can't happen here because this hasn't happened yet. Right. Th there shouldn't be as many inconsistencies in nonfiction. Right. So. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I would assume that that is a little bit easier on the editing side, nonfiction. Mm -hmm. How about sci-fi? What do you think about like sci scientific fiction? 
I think that it's definitely an, an interesting area. I've been dabbling a little bit in sci-fi, but haven't really <laughs> done so much myself. I know there's a lot of great sci-fi stories mm-hmm. out there that already mm-hmm. exist. And, right. uh, you know, the Star Trek and Star Wars are some of the bigger ones. And That's right. And mm-hmm. even though some people might not consider one sci-fi and the other, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but <laughs> I think there's definitely a lot that we can learn Mm-hmm. from reading science right. fiction as well and not just in in the realm of science but mm-hmm. for example in i mean the the things that i just brought up which are mainly tv shows and movies uh mm-hmm. you know star trek deals a lot with diplomacy i'm not sure if right. you've seen uh mm-hmm. much of that and there's also a lot of uh you know, some of it's pseudoscience of course but there's a lot of mm-hmm. scientific you know underlines there and then you move over to something like star wars and right. The Jedi are essentially warrior diplomats. So if you had the Hideyoshi and Nene sort of come together as one person, you might have uh, Qui-Gon Jinn or whoever. I don't know. Right. Yeah, I think that's quite interesting. And also for, you know, uh, space exploration, you know, like some sort of, you know, imaginative power, you know, has to play a role, right? For so, sure, for sure. Right. Um, so I'm really interested in learning more about this genre. Mm. I don't know if you've met James O'Donoghue yet. He's, he's one of the, uh-huh. um, oh, he, yeah, he's working at uh, ISIS over there at JAXA. Right. And in some of our off-the-record conversations, we, we do talk <laughs> a little bit about, uh, you know, sci-fi and everything. And I, I think some of the things that he experienced or watched as a uh-huh. kid definitely influenced his career path as well. Right, and right. I mean, I've heard similar stories from other people. So I think it's it's very common for science fiction writers and, and even more general, just writers and the ideas that they put out to influence scientists and mm-hmm. then the discoveries or theories of scientists going back and influencing writers. So it's, it's kind of like a beautiful right. loop there, I would say. Definitely, definitely. That, that would be my personal conquest to find out about, you know, some sci-fi behind scientists at JAXA. <laughs> oh, you can, yeah, you should definitely uh, uh, talk to some of the people over there at, at this, that campus. And right. I'll I'm be sure on this there there's some people who could go very mm-hmm. deep into conversations about <laughs> uh, why things are understandable the way they are, or maybe, mm-hmm. you know, somebody might bring up, okay, it doesn't make sense that Superman's powered by the yellow sun, or I don't, I don't know what oh, they're <laughs> talking about, but uh, we'll see. Yeah. Yes. So, a lot right. of interesting points there, yeah. Uh, we, we did kind of stray quite a ways away from your, your career history. <laughs> but I, I would like to kind of get back and, and I, we haven't figured out how you got to Jackson. I think we right. got to a point you were teaching at Harvard about the, the Lady mm-hmm. Samurai and, and about Kyoto right. and perhaps other courses. And I understand that your lectures were actually quite popular at Harvard too. Thank you. So one of the courses that I taught was on the history of mathematics. And at that time, my um, book became bestseller. Um, I really thought about the meaning of life, like, you know, what kind of thing that I like to do, right? Then Mm -hmm. the history of math was something that I was very passionate about. And there are only a few people on earth, you know, that will be, you know, tackling this uh, as a career. And I thought like that would be a very interesting thing to do if I be putting, you know, 100% in this field. And um, I, I could probably do more research than anyone else. And I just decided to go on this um, uh, research project. 
to do uh, global history of mathematics. So um, at that time, you know, leaving Harvard and uh, with my best selling book uh, in Japan, I just decided my focus was just the history of mathematics. And you know, years on, you know, later, um, now I have this book coming up, you know, in 2023. So it took a long time, but my dream came true. And um, that led me to see the history of astronomy, for example, and like, you know, exhibitions, you know, the real, you know, space exploration materials, you know, that I did a research on. And then that gave me an opportunity to, you know, learn about the current, you know, what's going on with the space industry. So that was like my starting point of considering the space exploration as my next project. So, you know, everything was connected in a way, right? Like loosely, but, you know, it was connected. So I was making a great choice that, you know, I went on this independent, you know, um, research project moving from Harvard, which was, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts to real Cambridge and, you know, trying to gather things in Europe, which I wanted to see um, from my Vancouver years, you know, as I said, like, and I knew, you know, there is a, you know, country speaking, you know, only French <laughs> and I wanted to go and see it. Right. And then in a country who's speaking in German, I really wanted to see it. So um, that took me to, you know, the great journey of, you know, living in um, Europe, um, especially in England and um, Germany. How long were you living in Europe in, in, in general, I guess? The, in, I think in general, it was about seven and a half. Yeah. Yes. Seven years. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because you have an interesting accent, let's say it's it it doesn't sound like the average accent <laughs> that you would find in in I would say most Japanese people. It it sounds like there's multiple countries converging, right? And you know, maybe I have a some strange things too in my accent. No, no. Um, so when I'm speaking with you, um, my accent's getting closer to yours. But for example, <laughs> I've been in England. I'd be speaking more like in a British accent. So. Is, yeah. is this at all an intentional thing that you do, or do you just sort of get influenced by the I people around you? I think I'll be influenced by the person who I'll be speaking to. So it will depend, I think. Yeah, I'd be more British if I'd be speaking to British people. Well, yeah, let's, let's um, yeah, ask James to come along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What were you working on while you were in, in Europe? Um, so were you was... working at an institution? Right. So I was based in Cambridge doing oh, yes. research on the history of mathematics. And at that time, I was a young, um, not young, I uh, was a junior member of uh, Isaac Newton Institute for Mathematical Sciences and also um, affiliated to a college and also a visiting scholar at one of the colleges there as well. And um, I spent summers in Bonn, Germany there is a mathematical institute called Max Planck Institute for Mathematics. So I spent some time there. And in between uh, moving from Cambridge to Oxford, I spent two years in Berkeley, California. So um, I went back to America for a bit. So that's why my accent's been uh, mixed up. <laughs> all, <laughs> so all, all over the place. Yeah. All, all over the place. <laughs> um, right. So, and then uh, finally, I, I loved really loved living in Oxford and it was quite different from living in Cambridge but um, Oxford was um, really a um, great you know um, place for me to live um, I met great many friends there um, especially mathematicians and um, yeah I had a great time and the book coming along it's just just amazing um, 
my time uh, after Harvard was like, you know, something that I could not plan to do um, if I were just to be, you know, staying either in Vancouver or um, Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I feel like, you know, really lucky uh, to be able to go and live in different countries. So after that, uh, one year in Africa. One year in so, Africa. Okay, so even more. Uh... <laughs> Adventures. <right? laughs> yeah. So not after that. So I was still based in Oxford and um, oh. I was invited uh, to give lectures through visiting professor program. So um, I went to South Africa and um, I wrote history of modern mathematics in South Africa. Uh, with my co-author Ida, Ida Kikianti. So uh, she was my host faculty there in the university, at the University of Pretoria. And I visited her and her colleagues and I learned a lot of new things um, being in Africa. It was just an amazing place. As a diplomat, you know, learning about the world, you know, Africa was somewhere that I wished, uh, I hoped to go, but I did not think that I would spend extended amount of time there and the key part you know the really surprising story was that my first boss at the ministry of foreign affair was an ambassador of japan to south africa so we were reunited at that time and um amazing isn't it I don't know if you call that a coincidence or or maybe some... no idea no idea so he um he helped me uh, learning about the culture and also invited me back to give um, Japanese history lecture because I was there as a mathematics department you know visiting professor program so I wasn't doing the Japanese history but you know through diplomacy that I was able to give uh, lectures Japanese history so that was like a great you know coincidence or it was probably meant to be um, but it was really a great time Mm. really amazing right then I went back to Oxford and um, I got a phone call from my friend from um, Science Museum London and uh, they were um, redoing the permanent gallery and they wanted to have uh, more collections from Asia. So I was called up and say like, do you know anything about JAXA? (laughs) And I was uh, interested, but I did not have a proper experience of uh, doing research at all in the space exploration. So I started off visiting um, JAXA's branches and, um, you know, trying to Uh, see the catalogs and then trying to learn you know like what kind of missions that JAXA does and you know it was just a whole amazing stories that I started to learn and then finally I was in a team of a space gallery at the same time as like being in the based in Oxford so Science Museum um, helped me learning a little bit um, you know more about space exploration in Asia especially Japan Already you've uh, been all over the world and done uh, worked for some very large organizations and universities, Thank institutions. You. This is Thank uh, you. Mm. an impressive, <laughs> <laughs> impressive CV that you've, uh, that you've got here already. And, and this was all before you came to JAXA. So. That's right. So finally, um, I arrived here and I applied to this uh, position because I thought um, education has to be provided for all, like for all is probably possible, but we just try to do as many as possible, right? So Mm -hmm. um, this opportunity um, 
looks like, you know, um, something that my background experience specialties all come together and I could probably do a good job. So I was confident um, to apply for, um, you know, this specific, you know, project. And um, I would really like to, you know, just to learn and also uh, provide uh, something to both Japanese and, you know, global audience. So that's, you know, my next chapter of life, right? Sort of style, you know, so, right. With all your experience uh, to this point, I would not expect that you'd have too difficult of time at least getting an interview with almost institution that you, where you <laughs> might apply. But was there something specific about JAXA that you, you wanted to work at JAXA as opposed to another either educational institution or even a space institution? Right. As- mm, interesting questions. Um, I think MMX sort of like impressed me so much to the point so the mars um, moon exploration mission right right so that project hit my heart so hard that it didn't matter like you know if that's jaxa or like whatever like the um, agency that does something like mmx i would be happy to work for and that just happened to be jaxa so um it was amazing you know like why people are just going to mars and then this space agencies, you know, planning to go to the moons of Mars. And like, so great, isn't it? So yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely an interesting uh, mission. And if anybody listening doesn't know about the MMX mission, we, we did discuss it on a few previous episodes with mm-hmm. some of the guests. So yeah, definitely go have a listen and, and see what that's all about. Uh-huh. So. Please do, please do. So that changed my life. So thanks, MMX crew <laughs> but doing that <laughs> right yes so I think that project really stands out it's, it really has great plans ahead and um, as a member of the science museum research team that I wanted to introduce that to the world and that's where I started to study um, the space exploration uh, especially the JAXA's programs and um, it was really um, an interesting process that I got to know about the previous missions, uh, of course, like in Hayabusa, Hayabusa 2, and, you know, other like sample return missions uh, of the world. And I started to feel like, you know, there is an ongoing important project for human beings and, you know, something that I like to be a part of. And that's how I got into, you know, interested in the space science. So, yeah, definitely. Thank you, uh, everybody involved in the MMX mission. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Are, are you going to be working with educating people in regard to the MMX mission as well in moving forward? Definitely, right. So I'm starting to, um, I started to learn um, a lot more about, you know, different missions as well. Mm-hmm. And as a historian, I like to be um, telling, you know, great stories, you know, from the past as well. So um, I'm still learning, you know, great deal out of this, but that's why, you know, education, um, this is like a big goal and it's an uh, amazing opportunity for me to be putting like, you know, input through like, you know, this channel of education and then getting that as an output. So um, dealing with, you know, any kind of missions that I could come up with like the way of telling, you know, the kids, or like, you know, telling, you know, adults, you know, telling seniors, you know, all about like, you know, how, you know, humans related to space and like how humans being like, you know, are planning or knowing more about the universe. 
And I think those things just really come together. And I feel like, you know, this is about time to um, get more focus. And like, we will be like, you know, adding space education as like one of the great subjects for school children and so on. So I think I came to the place where like, you know, I could put all in, you know, all my energy and all my time in communicating with like as many people as possible. I think you've been talking with Elizabeth, who we also had on this, uh, this podcast. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it was episode three, we had Ryuki Hyodo. I don't know yes. if you admit him, maybe. <laughs> yeah, he's, I haven't uh, met him, but okay. I've heard that. Yes. Yeah, he's his presentation. Yeah, and on the podcast, he talked about, I think, five different missions with which he was involved, some of them ongoing right. at JAXA. Mm-hmm. So he might be somebody who you might want to talk right. to about some of the possibilities. I'm excited about this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So Elizabeth and I would like to create some podcasts. So I mentioned a little bit about podcasts uh, for school children, mm-hmm. and uh, Elizabeth and I are looking at the moon. And we'll try to do, um, you know, short project, hopefully to be completed in June. So everyone stay tuned. <laughs> okay, so it's probably going to be uh, more popular and better than this podcast, but oh, uh, we'll... in June, yeah, we will. <laughs> it's going to be a tough competition, Toshi. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have, yeah, it will be interesting to listen to that. Do, do you already have a name for the podcast? That's a secret. <laughs> okay, it's not decided, but okay, Jaxa will probably have a new podcast in June, you said. Yes, so we're and aiming to release them in June. In mm-hmm. June, and this will be in, in multilingual? Uh, mainly English. Mainly English. And try to, yes, so we, we will go um, from English, and also we might have visuals, so then we could have some uh, subtitles, um, you know, along with uh, English. So, I mean, that will probably be in Japanese, but um, hopefully in the future, that will be more multilingual. Um, as I learned French and German, they're really <laughs> good language, languages as well. So, yeah. Mm, yeah. All right. Well, uh, everybody should be looking forward to that as well. Please. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go back a little ways now that we've covered I suppose, a a large portion of your uh, career history anyway, to your work, since you've worked as a diplomat and and have studied a lot uh, regarding diplomacy and a lot of, I guess, the practices that have been historically used, I wanted to ask you about diplomacy as a whole. So I think generally uh, diplomacy is viewed as, as a method for keeping peace between people, be it nations or individuals. Before mm-hmm. the interview, I watched a, uh, a mm-hmm. one of the talks that you did regarding diplomacy in the Lady Samurai, mm-hmm. and I recall a specific line, and this will be paraphrasing because I don't recall what? the exact words, but you said yes. something along the lines of diplomacy is a continuous dialogue between people. That's and right. Mm-hmm. This was a very intriguing look at diplomacy, and I wanted to sort of ask you questions regarding this and see if you could expand on this. I I would maybe assume that uh, continuous dialogue, Mm -hmm. would you still consider it diplomacy, even if the dialogue is relatively unfriendly, let's say? Right. I think still, (laughs) yes. I think it counts as a diplomacy because, you know, we have to keep talking, right? So, you know, at the time the violent conflicts happened, usually when diplomacy fails, right? So 
in a way that diplomacy is a continued conversation between two parties or more than two parties uh, where they would be willing to sit on the table and you know continue talking and i think that should be called diplomacy and even though you know the things are not really like going well the act of being there together in the same room and talking about the same theme. I think that's really a valuable thing. And we have to really notice the value of it. And I think that's the thing that has been sort of missing, you know, like it became more about formality, you know, of meeting like in every two months or something or like in every two years. And they started to forget what continued communication would have brought to the world. So I think diplomacy in a way to be taking that to the next step, that we should appreciate the part, you know, like being continued for a longer time or like, you know, in a certain length of time. I think, you know, we just have to take a look at the value of being active and then being, um, you know, diplomatic. I think those kind of things um, really has been, has not been, you know, paid attention um, so much, but it has a great potential. Like, why do we have to be keep talking and you know in a way keep learning from each other i think that's an attitude that comes down to education too so you know diplomacy is not just about you know between countries but you know when it comes down to the individual level um not only diplomats but also like grown-ups you know adults and you know all the citizens i think we need to have you know the sense of what good diplomacy is all about which is you know to continue conversations hopefully on a daily basis. As an example, let's let's bring up a hypothetical situation here. Mm-hmm. I could probably think of a, a concrete situation if that would help, but for, uh, let's just say, for example, if one of our listeners is uh-huh. personally having a disagreement with another party, say, uh, okay. uh, let's say a friend, for example, and they did want to find a diplomatic solution, but they didn't mm-hmm. feel that their opinions are really lining up very well. Mm-hmm. How much would the, let's say, the subject of the dialogue and the and the method of the, the dialogue, like whether it would be through email or direct conversation or phone calls, mm-hmm. or, or I'm sure there's a lot of different Levels. potential methods there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah the, the method and the subject, if they matter much and what actual kinds of, of dialogue would or should be used to sort of reach a peaceful solution if mm-hmm. those things do matter. Mm-hmm. Well, in my opinion, as long as communication continues, the subject or level of engagements do not matter. So I think the key is to have a regular like conversations. So, you know, even though like one time, you know, just nothing came along and like nothing was like, nothing sounds valuable, but still like, you know, that leads up to the next meeting, which may bring a big result. So I think, you know, the continued conversation, you know, just have to keep, you know, meeting up or like, you know, have a willingness to be sitting on the same table. I think that matters a lot. Yeah, in my opinion, like, you know, it's maybe like one time will be boring or like you know, one time, like you might be like, you know, um, giving up, but don't, right? Just to, you know, come back and then talk again. And the result will be even like larger than expected before. So I think that's why, you know, it's, it's more about, you know, continuing, you know, active, you know, continuing rather than like, you know, what you do every time. Mm-hmm.
what if one of these two parties, let's say person A wants to talk, but person B has no interest in meeting for talks at all? Right, uh, right, right. So maybe person A, person B, you know, they are friends and then they used to talk in person. But if B is not willing to talk in person, then maybe A will be sending a line message, right? So it would be like a different sort of way to reach out. And by doing so, the conversation will continue, right? So I think, you know, it's it's like less less interaction in a way, like, you know, A has to wait for B's replies and so on. But as long as B replies in about a week, you know, like things will continue, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, I think there's a kind of things like, you know, everything will not go as expected. But I think, you know, the change in the methods, you know, to the way that B will feel more comfortable with and then, you know, things will move forward. And, you know, that's the act of diplomacy, you know, like maintaining the relationship, right? So I think that's why, you know, there are just so many applications to life and especially like, you know, um, between two parties. I think, you know, it's just a good reminder why we're choosing to interact with certain people and why we should be more diplomatic and, you know, to have more consciousness on like, you know, who to talk to and how to talk to, what to talk to. Mm -hmm. What would happen if, if uh, person B did not respond in, in a week? Should person A continue trying to reach out? Uh... Oh, well, so we have a common friends, don't we? Right? <laughs> so that's why there's a party C, you know, or person C, C mm -hmm. uh, who should come into play, right? So if B is really upset about what A did, then A cannot just be apologizing. Then A will ask C, to be conducting B to sort of like, you know, mediate, you know, the relations between two, between the two. So um, I think, you know, there are many ways to, you know, continue the conversation. And that's why like, you know, it's just not only two countries who should be talking, but, you know, multiple countries being involved and helping each other to the better, right? So, right. So that's why like, you know, the, you know, bilateral and like multilateral diplomacy both are very important because, you know, in case that kind of situation happens that we just can't rely on each other, then we will find, you know, another friend to help us. That, that's quite an interesting point there, because I think when a lot of people think about uh, diplomacy and peace, it's often searching for common ground mm -hmm. uh, with someone with whom you disagree, but sometimes it might actually be finding common relationships mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. you might have with, with those people. So as you mentioned, person C, a mutual friend of these two people might, I'm not sure if they'd become an arbiter of, of diplomacy or just, mm -hmm. um, I suppose that's just one way to continue to look for Right. Uh, a method of peace there. And that's, that's right. interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As right. I think, a, you know, the interagencies, um, you know, like, like agencies um, work on like different projects, but exchanging some information or like sharing the research projects, you know, those things have applications to all businesses, including the space industry, um, in space sciences. So I think, you know, that's why, you know, this is like a, you know, the keyword, right? Like how we communicate, how well we want to work together. And I think that's why, like, I never forget, forgotten about my time um, working as a diplomat. If you personally were, let, let's say, in a situation in which two of your friends were very angry at each other, they, they felt that they could not 
deal with their differences. They, right. I'll just let everybody assume that the, the differences are inconsolable actions that happen between these two parties. So if you had two friends like this, uh, as a, a third party with the opportunity to communicate with both of these people, mm-hmm. how would you go about and, and even should you go about trying to create a dialogue between them, assuming that they had a, a very bad fallout? Right. Um, the key to me is time. So I would not be solving it immediately, but I would wait. So this is like another parameter of, you know, being diplomatic about things. Like you know, once um, things calm down, things might have been better, right? So I think mm-hmm. what I learned a great deal from my own experience is that um, time is a good um, sort of like, you know, resolvent, like it's something of a tool um, of the diplomacy. You know, like it's not just being patient, but, you know, patience is a part of it because time can be, you know, um, the best medicine sometimes. In diplomatic situations, you definitely need to be patient. Otherwise, uh, you'll have right. three people all mad at each other instead of two. Right, 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 <laughs> right. So I think timing is quite important in a way. So, you know, but keep in mind that diplomacy is all about continuing the conversation. So mm-hmm. even if like, you know, it was like a shout out match, we still have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so... So it's better to, I suppose, continue shouting. Uh, Rather than like, yeah, not communicating not at all. Not communicating at all. So yes, as long as this isn't escalating to, let's say, physical violence. Then... Yeah, so no violence, right? So that's the, <laughs> the red line. You know, you just don't want to do that. Okay, yeah. So don't get physically violent. But if you have to, just keep yelling at each other. And... <laughs> well, at least you get to know like what the other people are thinking about, right? So... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Right. <laughs> Interesting life tips. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, mm-hmm. so, you know, find common relationships, uh, be patient, and, uh, and continue the conversation no matter, uh, no matter what, almost no matter what. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So that's, that's, yeah, a lot of interesting <laughs> stuff there. Um, <laughs> I'd like to hear what, um, you know, scientists would think about this, you know, conversation and, you know, especially the theme of diplomacy, you know, they might have a different, you know, stance or like some sort of input. Oh, um, yeah, definitely. Yes. Um, I, I probably shouldn't bring up any uh, concrete examples of who said what here, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I know that, you know, scientists, they, they do all have their own views and aren't always there's probably like a public stereotype where scientists are mostly scientific about everything they do in their lives. But uh, a lot of people do seem to forget that they are also people. They have, they get emotional. They have beliefs and core values that may or may not be uh, scientifically mm-hmm. proven in, in, or, or even scientific theories for that matter. Mm-hmm. And they end up uh, with their own arguments and, and need their own diplomatic measures. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, even for the scientists here, continue, continue the dialogue. Right, continue <laughs> the dialogue, right? Yeah. Also, I think, you know, the what space science is teaching me is about the stance or the viewpoint so, for example, like two people, like, you know, arguing or two scientists having a different you know, disagreement, then what they could do is 
sort of like a take a step back, right? So from the viewpoint far, far away, they might come up with an agreement, right? So not from like you know, their own, you know, their, their, their positions, like current positions, but just like step away, like, you know, like far back and just take a look from the objective point of view. And it could be like in a position of really like, you know, far away, different galaxy, then they just try to, you know, come up with a common ground. So I think, you know, the what space science is interesting is to really see from a different angle and like, you know, having things, you know, more scientific and also more objective. Sounds like a, a really good mental practice for, <laughs> for, for everybody. And maybe for some of the scientists, they could even, uh, get access to the James Webb Space Telescope, aim it at Earth and look right. at themselves from a long distance. I don't know. But... Right. And then they will probably start talking again. <laughs> yeah. Just, okay. If you're willing to uh, hijack the James Webb Space Telescope, then I'll, I'll talk with you, right? <laughs> there will I be a know. benefit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there might be some consequences too, but yeah, definitely some benefits to that. That would right? be, yeah. That's, mm -hmm. uh, that's interesting to, mm -hmm. to, think about too how scientists could go about resolving their, their disagreements mm -hmm. finding diplomatic measures and if you do happen to find any arguments going on it would be great if you'd mm -hmm. be the the third party arbiter to mm -hmm. uh, their diplomatic mm -hmm. measures too right <laughs> so i uh, i wanted to ask you about your public speaking as well because you were mentioning earlier that in, uh, in college, you'd pretty much never been able to do a presentation. That's you were, right. You felt you were I really bad shy. at it. <laughs> you were shy. <laughs> and then you ended up giving lectures at, at Harvard. I know you've done mm -hmm. a, a keynote speech at, I think, the uh, UNESCO World Heritage Learning Summit, gave mm -hmm. a speech at the World Government Summit. That's um, right. And several other speeches, mm -hmm. including a, a TED talk. Uh, I think it's a TEDx talk specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we should figure this out because I'm not 100% clear, but is there a big difference between what TED and TEDx are? Or is that oh, just a location? Right. Uh, so TEDx is a collaboration. So my case was that TEDx World Bank. So I mentioned a little bit about me um, you know, participating in the events uh, hosted by World Bank. And also like at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that I was taking care of the World Bank related issues, especially, especially about the funds. So I was familiar with the people who work at um, the World Bank. So invitation came through um, the person who was organizing the annual events of the World Bank and IMF related events. So um, TEDx at that time was held in Stendai and I was invited through those people uh, who were working at the World Bank. And then that's why the TEDx is called like TEDx World Bank. So um, it was hosted by the World Bank. Uh, I see. Mm. So, mm -hmm. do, do people have to be invited to do a TEDx talk? Because I've heard yes. that you could apply for the regular mm -hmm. TED talks. Um, I think some educational institutions invite the applications uh, for talks. So I think it's, it has been changing, but my time was like, you know, beginning of the TED era. So at that time, that was an invitation only project. And yes, uh, fortunately that my experience of uh, working in the field of diplomacy, you know, led me to speak about uh, the Lady Samurai and the class that I taught at Harvard. So 
I think that was a great things to sort of share in English. In in a few short years, going from not being able to do any presentation to right? doing a uh, a big TED talk is uh, mm -hmm. amazing uh, progress, <laughs> amazing growth there, and. My understanding anyway is that nowadays, probably pretty much anybody can apply to do a TED Talk if they want. Probably. Not necessarily get accepted, but they can uh, apply for it. <laughs> yeah, apply. And uh, sort of one of my personal goals with this podcast is to try and make an effort to bring uh, at least a small amount of potentially actionable knowledge, such as tools or templates to the listeners which is honestly quite difficult most of the time with astrophysics and, and uh, mm -hmm. such subjects. But uh, I would like to ask sort of more detail about your TED Talk specifically, as mm -hmm. I believe this could essentially be an achievable goal for people who want to make strides in terms of public speaking, even if right. they aren't involved in academia specifically. Right. I think the good thing about TED Talks is very short, you know, it was like about seven, eight minutes. And the speakers see the time lapsing, like in front of us. So there's a clock and it just goes like tick, tick, tick. You know, it's digital, but um, mm -hmm. it was just like showing how many more uh, minutes that I have. So it's a good practice, you know, because knowing that the time is limited, we can't really talk forever. So we decide to make a point, you know, just, just straight to the point. Uh, within a minute, one, two, three, four, five, six. So when you divide the main points into five, then you know exactly where you are, right? So I think that's a good practice sort of um, to divide the time and come to the main point at each minute. So I think, you know, I, I did not specifically plan that talk for um, that purpose, but sometimes for lectures, I have milestone hours so like, you know, sometime after, you know, 10 minutes, I have to hit this. And then uh, 20 minutes, I have to hit this and so on. So I think, you know, my, my lecture plans are pretty much like that, that within like five to 10 minutes spans that I know what I should be talking about. Always setting milestones or kind of similar to chapters or, or sections in writing a book as well. That's right. That's right. Just so, a, a shorter period of time. Right. So it's like an outline that you have to have. Mm -hmm. But um, otherwise, you know, you can just be free to talk and, you know, just go with the flow. So I think as long as you cover all the points that you wanted to convey, I think that's a you know, successful speech or lectures. So, you know, in between, uh, we should not be afraid of even making mistakes or, you know, mumbling or, you know, mm -hmm. at the end, like it's just just what counts is, you know, my points um, getting through. So I think, you know, overall, I think that's the goal. And um, I think, you know, there's no, not one way to present the idea. So I think, you know, just, just really like, you know, relax, right? Like we've just been communicating. And as long as we've been like, you know, talking to each other, you know, just take your time and, you know, make a point. So I think that's what the public speech is all about. You know, when the audience is large, that we cannot expect to be able to communicate with each one of them. But we hope that, you know, within the 50 minutes or within even seven minutes, that each one of them in the crowd will take some sort of like, you know, elements from the talk and then they will keep thinking about it for the rest of the day. 
you already have the idea for the talk. I, I think it was roughly based on some of the lectures that you had uh, previously done. But right. Did you already know what you were going to talk about as soon as they contacted you? How did you come up right. with the so, idea for what you were going to talk about? That's right. So I thought about it. And at that time, I did not decide until last minute, like what I oh. wanted to talk about. <laughs> and that was quite risky. But at that time, I did not want to, for example, introduce the contents only. You know, the talk has to be a message, right? So it took time for me to come up with a message. So like what kind of things that the audience will take home? Like, it's just like, what would they be thinking after listening to my talk? So it was quite different from lecture. Lecture being like, you know, like full of, filled with like information and like great content. But, you know, TED Talk is something that, you know, has to hit everyone's heart in one way or another. So I think, you know, that was a new challenge for me. Like, you know, being a university lecturer who has to cover like, you know, point A to point Z. And, you know, the TED Talk was all about like making a great influence to people's lives. And those are two different things. And both are education now that I know, but at that time I did not. So. What did you have to prepare for your talk besides, I guess, the, the talk itself? I needed I... a test audience. <laughs> I needed a test audience. So the I had to tell, audience. right, yeah, two of my friends just to be sitting there. And, you know, I just ran through it. And, like, they gave me feedback. And um, I did that, as I said, last minute so that, you know, the talk might not have been perfect. But still, like, you know, I was convinced that that was something that I wanted to uh, speak on that day. Did you have everything that you wanted to say prepared beforehand or just sort of a general outline? I think general outline more or less and you know on the stage you know I took this approach of like you know hitting the point every minute and you know more or less and mm -hmm. you know trying to cover things that I wanted to say. Yeah um, it was never easy and I just if I do that again on the same topic I would have done like quite a you know, different way. Mm -hmm. But still, I think, you know, it was a good try, I must say. Yeah, I'll do uh, yeah, it differently every time. And I'm willing to do that. Yeah. Roughly, how many times did you practice in front of uh, your friends before? Right. I think talk? that depends. I think at that time, you know, for TED Talks, um, it took me a while to really decide what I wanted to say. You know, I explained that to you. But for other talks, I rehearsed so much. For example, from the time that I was flying from Berkeley to uh, Dubai, and that was a direct flight uh, for 16 hours. And I practiced all the way. And I was just recording my voice on the plane and the uh, neighbor was starting to sort of like <laughs> notice that this is a rehearsal. And um, there was like an interesting interactions that um, he just became my test audience, you know, in, at one point. So um, I think that was an interesting experience. Like I knew what I wanted to talk about for that one. And I really rehearsed and um, yeah, tried to say things more accurately than the first one. Mm it's better to have more time to rehearse than less time. <laughs> well, it's not necessary. So that's like, you know, interesting thing about public speech. Like, you know, it really depends on like, you know, the day really. Mm. So, but I think we all have to accept that there's like a great purpose behind it. You know, when we talk in front of the public, yeah. that you are not just saying something to yourself, but something to the public. And no matter how, you know, talk goes, that we hope 
that people will keep thinking about the theme that we provide. So, your TED talk was, even though it was in Sendai in, in Japan, the talk I think was only done in English, and then maybe there was a, a Japanese translator. Tra- like a, translator. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. Was it your choice to do it in English, or was this part of the format? Oh, that was a part of the format. So okay. I had to be speaking in English. Yes. You know, the same thing for the UN General Assembly, for example, that there are like five standard languages, um, for example. And, and Japanese you know, isn't one oh, of them. Isn't one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, you know, French speakers, they stick to French and um, English speaker will have these, you know, earphones that can be, you know, used to. Oh, yeah. Um, and they'll have the translators uh, translating in real time. Right, it's right. quite a hard job itself. I've had to do that once or twice in the past, and it's it, yeah, it's a quite a different nervous. skill, right? I I learned yeah so much from doing that. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. Uh, I I wouldn't care to do it too much again, but maybe it's uh, good to get in uncomfortable situations like right, that right. to help you grow <laughs> a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah. So so do, do you actually enjoy public speaking now, or are you well, just a little I bit more to... used to? It? Right. I think I try to enjoy it now so that um, my, you know, enthusiasm or passion will convey. Um, so like, you know, before it was more like, you know, hiding the nervousness. But now, like, you know, at least I'm not nervous. So I try to convey my emotion, you know, like message and also like, you know, uh, even my mood, you know, so the audience will have an easier time, you know, getting what I'm talking about and, you know, who I am and so on. Mm. Thank you for that. <laughs> the radio or podcasts are even harder, though, because they could not see. I, I guess, how. yeah, if it's like this podcast, we don't have the video on. So if I'm expressing myself with my hands or trying to show <laughs> some uh, PowerPoint slides, nobody's going to see those. Um, right. Do you, do you normally create, let's say, a PowerPoint or, or it doesn't have to be PowerPoint, but some kind of visual presentation for your talks? Uh, I use Keynote. And I use visuals, but I don't use many words. So those are like a cues, you know, like just sort mm-hmm. of like, you know, visual aid in that sense. So uh, I try to explain that with words. So I try not to put too many words on the slides and try to, you know, focus on my audience and try to have like better connections. But visuals, of course, you know, sometimes will really help. So I will still like to keep that on if I can. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, that makes a lot of sense because once in a while you do see those PowerPoint presentations with like uh, font size eight and just uh, right. the entire text and Going. they're trying yes. to read off the, the uh, image, the keynote or whatever. And mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why we're creating a podcast, you know, like we just try to have different, you know, mode of communication alive. And yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Right. In your public biography, there's several of your accolades are mentioned that haven't we haven't really brought up here, mm-hmm. including one of them that the Nikkei Business Publication, which mm-hmm. is I think a high caliber magazine in Japan, maybe comparable to Forbes in terms of content. I'm not sure if that would uh-huh. be entirely accurate, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you were selected several years ago in their list of 100 most influential people in Japan, which is quite, I, I think, a high praise for... Thank you. Thank a, you. Especially a country with so many people. 
And, uh, so right. I, I think I guess, what's yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what I quite liked about that specific occasion was that I was classified as a thinker. And there were like many categories. So like, you know, creators, leaders, and, you know, uh, specialists and so on. I can't remember the, you know, exact categories, but Mm. I was placed under thinkers. And that really made me think about who I am. And I wasn't like, you know, um, told that I would be a thinker. But since I saw myself, you know, under that category, that changed my life. <laughs> so they just told you beforehand that they were going to put you on this, this list and they didn't mm-hmm. say exactly how it would show up. They did not. Right. So <laughs> that was quite a pleasant surprise that I was under that category. <laughs> That's quite amazing. I mean. How did it feel when they first told you, we want to publish you as one of the top 100 most influential people in the entire country? I I would assume it's mostly a positive feeling, but I'm sure there there must be some pressure and uh, maybe overwhelming expectations. uh, That's right. Yes, I was overwhelmed. So I could not believe it, of course. And um, you know, for a while, I thought about like, you know, do I, you know, uh, deserve this? But the interesting thing about that particular magazine is that I do not say anything about myself, but I will get a recommendation sort of letter from someone um, who writes about my achievement. So the style was like quite different from like, you know, me speaking as like, you know, one of the hundred influential person, but sort of like the person who introduced me on that magazine was a university professor who knew about like, you know, my time at Harvard. And, you know, he writes like very comical, you know, sort of like a blurb about, you know, my achievements. And, you know, that was like really telling me that, you know, oh, I came to this point and, you know, I have to take this responsibility of being nominated as one of the hundred, you know, influential person. So, um, you know, the style of that magazine at that time, uh, quite clever. And I still remember vividly that that really changed my life. Because mm. that's, that's pretty amazing, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so amazing, yeah. I think several years ago now, but uh, delayed congratulations for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for this. <laughs> so I do have several final more general questions that I'd, mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you. I, I know you mentioned very briefly earlier that you were playing the piano while you were writing uh, uh, your book. And mm-hmm. this could be including piano or, or instruments, uh-huh. but do you have any notable hobbies or things that you like right. to do when you're not working? Um, I like skating. So in Canada, I was in the ice hockey team. Ice and, hockey. Uh, wow. Right. So I was uh, playing with my friends uh, in the local team, university team. And I continued in Princeton. I changed my shoes um, and becoming a um, figure skater. So um, I really like, you know, try hard to get used to new, you know, shoes. You know, they're, they're different, you know, shoes, right? Like ice hockey and um, figure skating. So I continue doing that. And then by switching from, um, you know, ice hockey to figure skating, I learned quite different sort of things about life, you know, for team play, like, you know, ice hockey, 
I learned so much about like, you know, how to interact with people and, you know, what my role is in this, you know, game and so on. But um, figure skating is all about like you know, expressing myself. So using my body in a different way and all my, you know, all the attentions on me so that I really have to care so much about, you know, what I do on ice. So the skating um, to me has been really important. And um, it has been probably, you know, influential to my presentation style as well, because I'm not on ice, but I do the same thing on the podium, right? So I think in a way, um, those things really help me grow and try to, you know, express myself better um, as a public speaker. Do you still figure skate? Uh, I try to. Um, in England, there are no, uh, not too many ice things, but here... For example, you there's know, there's one. I mean, Saga one. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm hoping uh, to get back to that. And um, so maybe after this, I'm going to buy my shoes first. And, you know, I try to get back on nice. Mm. That's great. And then you can uh, add an Olympic medal to the, uh, <laughs> to all the achievements that you've already got so far. <laughs> <laughs> Never give up, right? <laughs> Never give up. No, it's. I, I think that's uh, definitely important. It's, uh, you know, don't just let the teens and 20-year-olds take all those medals. Show them that uh, you can right. never give up on your dreams, right? <laughs> I mean, I'd be, I'd be interested to actually see you uh, going to uh, figure skating tournaments or, or ice hockey uh, tournaments. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful challenge to take on. <laughs> We'll we'll see how that goes, but yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, I, I guess the first step is just going to the skating rink over there and right. getting back into it, and mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. step at a time. One step at a time, right? <laughs> I, I guess you have athletic hobbies as well as. Uh, do you still play the piano? I do, um, and I started to play uh, the drums. Oh, so uh, recently, right. So um, in the Corona times, you know, everybody have to have a new hobby. Extra so I picked hobbies, up, yeah. uh, right, right. So like something new, right? So then uh-huh. I, I picked up the drums and also a ukulele. Oh. A right. So, um, you know, it's quieter and um, it's really interesting um, things to learn and uh, very calming, you know, under the, you know, um, situation like COVID and, you know, that when it first happened, I was in England and that was like a massive fear over like what's coming next and so on. So, you know, picking up the musical instruments um, became like a, something of a boom. And um, I was greatly helped by those, you know, new instruments. And um, I was really, I, I wanted to continue a little bit more about, you know, um, yeah, how to, you know, relate the music into, you know, therapeutic sort of usage. So I knew about music therapy, for example, but I did not know how to practice it. So that would be like my, you know, sort of like next thing to learn, you know, how to use those skills to, you know, uh, different purposes. Mm. When you say the drums, do you mean like, uh, like the drums you'd expect to see in a rock band? That's right. Yeah. And I, I assume that you're not living in a crowded apartment. <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe you are. I left my drum sets at my parents' house. So okay. uh, in the rural area, not in the Fujinobe. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. But uh, yeah, maybe you can bring those to uh, the Sagamihara campus over there and 
<laughs> right, maybe this office. <laughs> yes, yeah, we have a drum set. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be yeah, there would be something to do maybe if uh, as long. I don't well, know if there, it's, uh... there is a band right here at ISIS. I heard. Oh yeah, yeah, there are. Yeah. I think they're the unofficial Jacks uh -huh. band. I'm not exactly sure who's right in, in there, but uh... right. So call me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so if any uh, band members or or anybody who wants to start a band and needs a drummer is listening, well, or the the keyboard, <laughs> or, or the keyboard, oh yeah, so or the ukulele, so or the ukulele, <laughs> <laughs> so multi-talented uh, musician and figure skater, and, so and the figure skater. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's uh, yeah, you you. I mean, we, we kind of started out this episode with discussing how mm -hmm. you are sort of have a very multidisciplinary lifestyle and, you know, we've, you. we've come full circle here and thank you, know, you. all the mm -hmm. things you're studying and uh, actually doing uh, really, you know, show that that you're actually living that kind of life. And it's, uh, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. So we did kind of discuss I guess, diplomatic tools and maybe public speaking tools, but do you have anything, this is more of an open-ended question, mm -hmm. and maybe related to your role as an educator mm -hmm. uh, at JAXA, do you have any sort of tools or resources that you can recommend to people who would mm -hmm. also be interested in spreading education uh, mm -hmm. similar to yourself? but might not have the backing to actually, you know, mm -hmm. make a large amount of content or, or do collaborations mm -hmm. with museums or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's a really uh, great challenge, you know, altogether. So um, even JAXA too, right? Like, you know, we don't know um, what kind of things to provide. Uh, we really you know, have to decide, um, you know, what kind of things will work, um, you know, at this time. So um, it's everybody's program. So in a way that I like to work together with even like, you know, small organizations or individual and into make a, you know, larger body of uh, learners. So that's like a great project to begin now um, so that we won't feel like, you know, we're left out or like, you know, no one, um, you know, feel like they have to have a membership or, you know, no one will, will feel like they have to pay tuitions, right? So I think those are the things that I like to try to be more inclusive and to have like, you know, more network, a very active network so that uh, people will be keep learning and also keep talking. So I think that's the goal that, you know, we all really have to work together and come up with, uh, you know, several solutions so that we can just, you know, learning things together about space. So would people, let's say individuals who also want to teach others about space, do the same sort of thing that you're doing, what do you think that, that they should do? Collaborate with other people to expand this? Right. It's an interesting project, right? So individuals too, like I myself as an individual, like I was not affiliated to, you know, JAXA to begin with or, you know, Harvard to begin with. But I myself started off like, you know, sort of a person who talks and express the ideas and then that's the start and I only had friends around me but you know if they are close friends they will have you know great feedback and they will have like you know great personal networks so um, I think you know just really like you know speaking to another individual that will be the next step for everyone so it's not like you know, a large organization can provide it all 
So I think we all have to know that we are on at the same level and you know we are putting the same amount of effort. And I think you know eventually you know those kind of things becomes like a large sum of energy. So I think that's like something something of like in a common picture that we want to share through you know even this podcast. So we are like you know two of us speaking, but you know eventually we like to spread the idea that the other person like you know in a faraway place will have the same motivation and like same sort of drive to learn more about life, space, uh, science, and about humans, right? So I think, you know, that's kind of like an idealistic sort of, you know, view that we can share and spread that will probably help. And it, that could probably help more than like, you know, getting a large sum of money or like, you know, large, um, you know, company um, along with us. So I think, you know, those kind of changing the mind and changing the attitude I think that's something that we could start from um, at the individual level. Really utilizing your, maybe in some ways, your greatest resources, your, your friends and the people that's around right. you. That's right, 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 right. So, and you did bring up uh, large sums of money. And there's a question that I like to ask the guests uh, <laughs> yeah. at the end. If you suddenly had a near unlimited budget, let's mm-hmm. say... JAXA said, okay, your, your budget for the next 10 years is $10 trillion or so something ridiculous. <laughs> um, and you could build or, or create or, or put it towards anything in your research field or, or uh, sure. I suppose in this case, vegan and educator. Um, what would you use that on? What would you like to create? Oh, interesting question. Um, I would do a recycled rocket making competition. Recycled so, rocket making competition. Right. <laughs> so build your own rockets from the recycled materials. And I'm talking about like, you know, kids, primarily for kids, mm-hmm. but um, they could probably like, you know, have some uh, bottles and some, you know, craft papers, or like, you know, some sort of things that, you know, around them, they could, um, you know, build some sort of like, you know, their own style of, you know, rockets or satellites, whatever. And um, they could just like, you know, try to sort of have that, show to the other people like friends or family and so on and you know I think you know having the mind of you know recycling things like you know resources limited right and you know we we have to like you know we use them and you know trying to be creative from the limited resources I think you know that gives out like you know great inventions so I think if we do that you know for the older kids from Asia and Africa, India, and like, you know, everywhere together. And they're making it as like, you know, great competition of building a model, you know, doesn't have to be like, you know, uh, engine, you know, and it can fly or anything, but it's just a model, right? So I think those kind of things that I like to do to get the idea across, you know, like what's important in life and what's important for humans. And I think that has more value than just building rockets. So I think, you know, if I had like trillion yen or trillion even dollars <laughs> or pounds, <laughs> I like to start a movement of, um, you know, something that, you know, that will be kind to our climate. And that would be very creative and regional. And, um, you know, kids, the next generation will have um, some sort of impact carried on their entire lives. So advancing science and engineering or, or kids getting involved with science and engineering mm-hmm. by reusing recyclable material. 
That's right. And creating this, these rockets. And you said you'd, you'd want it to be a competition. So the, right. the best rocket wins. <laughs> right. Well, like, you know, the examples are important, right? So some people like, you know, they think that uh, their creation is the best. But if mm. you see like someone else's, you know, there is always something to learn from. That's why like it doesn't have to be the first place to the 10th place. But I think, you know, some great example can, you know, teach each other about a few things. Yeah, for sure. I, th- I think it's probably also important to to make sure that the kids learn the mindset to mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. be able to accept the advice and the work of others and to look for the, the good points in yeah. uh, everyone else's work, even if they don't win or, or even if they do win, to be able to mm-hmm. look at what everybody else has done right. and really... Yeah, so maybe I'll change the word, right? You, you, your input is great. So I think I'll probably rephrase it, not like as a competition, but exhibition. Yeah, exhibition. Right? I mean, How's I, that? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I think either competition or exhibition could be valuable. But uh, mm-hmm. I guess it's, it really just depends on, uh, yep. <laughs> on, on how <laughs> it's, it's presented. Yeah, that's, that's right, right. Sounds like it might not even cost uh, a trillion dollars. So, you know, if right. there's any investors listening right now, or or <laughs> not necessarily investors, anyone with a lot of money who's interested in helping, you know, uh, please. It, yeah, it might be less than a trillion dollars. So help uh, the recycled rocket making exhibition come to fruition here. Super. <laughs> <laughs> I like to just end the episodes by asking if you have any sort of interesting fact, theory, suggestion, or piece of information that you'd like to convey to the audience for them to think about after this episode's over before they go on to their next podcast that they want to listen to. If you have anything, we would like that. Sure. Um, As an educator, I've been always curious about what education is. So philosophically speaking, education is deep and it's never ending. So I think everybody has a different stance and also thoughts on education. And I like to myself, you know, thinking about that all the time, but even just for today, like scientists or, you know, any person like who came across this podcast will have an occasion to think about what it means you know, what education really means to the next generation, I'll be really um, grateful. So really just everybody out there, think about the philosophy of education and think Mm -hmm. about what Mm -hmm. education could mean to the next generation and and people Mm -hmm. moving forward. And I suppose how that education could be used in the future. That's right. Right. So let's think together. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. We'll, we'll probably have a lot of m- more uh, conversations. Some of them, maybe they'll be recorded. Some probably, most hopefully won't, at least with, not without our knowledge. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it was really great talking to you today. And I think there's a lot of things mm-hmm. that, that people and that I've learned from this talk with you about a wide variety of, of subjects, you know, from public speaking and diplomacy to uh, space and exploration. And we've been over a lot of topics. So I hope everybody enjoyed this and, and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me.